from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, May 4th. I'm Marco Werman. A new deal for Chinese dissident Chen Guangcheng. The U.S. expects China to move quickly to allow Chen to leave. Also on the program, a survivor of last year's massacre in Norway reflects on what it means to be a Muslim there now. Plus, France votes for president again. This man isn't impressed with the candidates. So I uh, decided to vote for a goat. I think all the candidates represent the same ideas. Uh, wait, wait, wait. You said you voted for a goat? I voted for the goat. So uh, her name is Biquette. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It is the story that's dominated the news all week, the case of blind Chinese dissident Chen Guangcheng. When he left the protection of the U.S. Embassy in Beijing on Wednesday, he said he wanted to stay in China. A deal had been reached allowing him to do so, but Chen quickly changed his mind, voicing concern for the safety of his family. Now it seems a new deal has been struck. Chinese authorities announced today that Chen can apply to leave the country to study, and the State Department said a U.S. university has offered Chen a fellowship. But after all the twists and turns in this case, there's room for skepticism. The BBC's Martin Patience in Beijing says the final outcome is far from certain. This isn't a done deal yet. The Chinese officials have said that he can apply. They haven't said that that application would necessarily be successful. Although certainly U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said that progress had been made on the case. She welcomed uh, the decision by the Chinese authorities to allow him to apply. And a spokeswoman for for the State Department said that she hoped the Chinese authorities uh, would push through that application quickly. So the, this is the outline for a deal, but that this deal hasn't been done as of yet. So what kind of guarantees uh, can the U.S. get from China that uh, would ensure that this deal goes through? I think it is significant that China's foreign ministry put out a statement on this issue saying that he could apply to study uh, overseas uh, and it signalled that perhaps they were more willing uh, to uh, allow him to go overseas uh, in order to provide a kind of face-saving solution to what has become a real crisis uh, for China as well as the US, particularly for the US, I think. Would you say, Martin, that China blinked here? No, I don't think China did blink here. I think Beijing was hugely embarrassed when Mr. Chun appeared at the U.S. Embassy. But ever since then, I think Beijing's strategy, if you like, has been that it, in some ways it's got nothing to lose out of this case. I think it's America uh, that has really struggled on this issue, particularly Hillary Clinton. You have to remember that previously she'd spoken out uh, publicly about uh, Mr. Chun's case, calling on the Chinese authorities to release him 
from house arrest. On Wednesday, when this deal was being done, uh, Hillary Clinton, as well as other American diplomats, spoke about this deal in glowing terms. Mm. Uh, Mrs. Clinton also said that they would engage with Mr. Chun and his family on a daily, weekly and monthly basis. Well, I was just down at the hospital uh, where Mr. Chun is receiving medical treatment and the deputy ambassador of the American embassy, he wasn't allowed into the building. Martin, what pressure will come to bear on the Chinese government from its citizens uh, as this activist has essentially forced the hand uh, of the central government? To be honest with you, I think uh, very little. When you speak to Chinese about this issue, they will say it's simply up uh, to the central government. I mean, uh, many Chinese are simply disengaged from these big issues that involve America. They think that they're in the hands of China's leaders and there's absolutely nothing they can do. Mm. That said, when it was revealed that Mr. Chun had escaped, he's blind and he scaled a wall and he was driven hundreds of miles from Shandong province to the U.S. embassy, I think there was a sense of jubilation uh, amongst many of his supporters. But it was a bittersweet moment uh, because after it became public that Mr. Chun was in the embassy. Uh, many of the people involved in helping him escape, or indeed his supporters, were rounded up by the Chinese authorities. And he said himself that his wife, whilst he was at the embassy, his wife was tied to a chair for two days in their home. So certainly mm. it's been a very traumatic incident uh, for Mr. Chun, his family, and many of his supporters. The BBC's Martin Patience in Beijing. Chen Guangcheng is getting a lot of support from Chinese netizens and a few Chinese cartoonists using pen names. The world's Carol Hills has been keeping an eye on those cartoons all week as the saga of Chen has unfolded. Carol, what are you seeing in terms of cartoons coming out of China? A lot of interesting stuff, particularly by these two cartoonists. Both have pen names. One is Rebel Pepper. The other is Crazy Crab. And their stuff gets spread all over the web and also through aggregators of Chinese news that appears in English. I'm seeing a lot of images of, like, Nike swoosh saying, you know, just do it. In one cartoon, the swoosh is actually Chen Guancheng with his cane and glasses, and he's scaling a barbed wire fence. And the idea of just do it is just go on, be the activist and leave. Well, no, it's more no? just escape. It's Just th- escape. This is the daring escape from house arrest from his small village in Shandong province. I'm also seeing one cartoon of him standing in the U.S. embassy with a flag sort of waving at the Chinese security on the outside who really want to beat the crap out of him. So what about other cartoonists outside of China? This is such a dramatic episode. Everybody's looking at it. Everybody is. I'm getting some from Israel, some from United Arab Emirates, some from France. And they're actually more tame than the Chinese cartoonists themselves. So it's pretty interesting. The world's Carol Hills, who keeps an eye on how cartoonists around the globe are interpreting the news. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Marco. To Japan now, where the country's last operating nuclear power plant is scheduled to shut down for maintenance on Sunday. If that happens, Japan will be without so much as a watt of nuclear power for the first time in more than 40 years. The Japanese public turned strongly against nuclear power after last year's triple meltdown at the Fukushima Daiichi plant. Since then, there's been strong opposition to restarting nuclear reactors that have gone offline for various reasons. Among other things, there's concern about potential damage from another earthquake. Japan is one of the most seismically active countries in the world, and the concern isn't limited to nuclear power plants. New research suggests that Tokyo could soon be hit by a major quake. Sam Eaton has more from the Japanese capital. 
TSK でこれ筑波。In a quiet room at Tokyo University, seismologist Shinichi Sakai points to steady color-coded lines on a digital monitor. これが近いかな一番。はい。The screen displays real-time readings from Japan's extensive network of seismometers, and the flat lines show that all is quiet across this earthquake-prone region. Then, as if on cue, two of the lines start to jump violently. Oh, this one. This one. So what's happening? A translator explains what we're seeing. This TSK is Tsukuba.、Okay. Tsukuba is a cross area from Tokyo. Okay. And a small earthquake is happening. Sakai says small quakes like this happen about 10,000 times a year in Japan. And for geologists, even the small earthquakes are worth paying attention to. Sakai says since the huge quake just off Japan's northeast coast last March, there's been a five fold increase in small tremors around Tokyo. It's a mathematical omen for scientists like him. In January, he and the university's Earthquake Research Institute crunched the new numbers and came up with a shocking prediction a 70% chance that a major earthquake would hit Tokyo within the next four years. Sakai and his colleagues are among the country's leading seismic authorities, so the prediction itself gave the country a jolt. The government has also predicted a 70% chance of a major quake, but only sometime over the next 30 years. So, Sakai's new four year time frame has brought a huge backlash. Sakai hasn't retracted his prediction, but he now refuses to quote specific time frames. I, I cannot speak. <laughs> The last major earthquake to hit Tokyo was in 1923. It killed more than 140,000 people. There's been almost no significant seismic activity here since. And Sakai says that means most people have forgotten the risk Japan's capital city still faces. Yasuji Kamaya is one of the few remaining survivors of what's known as the Great Kanto Quake. I tracked him down to try to get a sense of what Tokyo may be in for. Kamaya was seven years old in 1923, living with his family in what was then a farming area on the outskirts of Tokyo. Today he's 97, but he remembers it like it was yesterday. He says he was fishing in a river on a bright sunny day when the quake hit. It knocked him over and shook the ground so violently that it emptied the river onto its banks. But Kamaya says it wasn't until nightfall that he realized how serious it really was. The sky in the direction of downtown Tokyo glowed red from the fires consuming the city. And a procession of evacuees began to stream past his home, some without shoes, all with stunned, empty looks on their faces. Of course, today Tokyo is a radically different place, a sprawling metropolis of some 35 million people. Every day, millions pack into the city's spotless train network on their way to forests of glass and steel office towers. Modern Japanese buildings are among the sturdiest in the world. The country spent billions after the 1995 Kobe earthquake developing the most advanced technology for protecting structures. Still, the government estimates that a powerful quake in Tokyo today would kill nearly 10,000 people and leave more than half a million buildings in flames. But seismologist Shinichi Sakai says predicting potential damage is extremely difficult. He says that's because it's not just a question of magnitude, which refers to the energy of the quake. The actual intensity on the ground can vary greatly depending on whether the quake's epicenter is deep or shallow. 
And new evidence suggests that a major fault line under Tokyo is much closer to the surface than previously thought. That means that a future earthquake here could cause more damage than the city has been planning for. After last year's massive quake caught the nation by surprise, the Tokyo government began scrambling to upgrade its disaster plans. So far, that means providing more emergency shelter and urging citizens and companies to stockpile emergency supplies. But for many here, these efforts offer little comfort. Honestly speaking, we are not ready for that yet at all. Every day, 43-year-old artist and electrician Toru Seno navigates Tokyo's labyrinth of elevated highways and corridors of glass towers in a small van. If I look up, there's another highway above me. So it means something happens. All I can do is just stay there here and there, get crushed. Seno says not a minute goes by that he's not planning his escape. But he says with last year's disaster still fresh in everyone's minds, the psychological toll of a major earthquake in Tokyo would be the hardest to recover from. Probably the economy or industry somehow is can be recovered, but the damage for people, it would be really big one, then probably we would be feeling really weak, I think. The government's slow response to last year's quake, tsunami, and nuclear disaster has left trust in government here at all-time lows. For Seno, that means he's more inclined to believe Shinichi Sakai's controversial prediction of a major quake in the next four years over the government's longer time frame. And after recently visiting the fallout zone around Fukushima, Seno says the most important message to remember here is that people need to protect themselves from earthquake risks rather than wait for the government to do it for them. For the world, I'm Sam Eaton, Tokyo. You can hear all of Sam's reporting on Japan's slow recovery from the 2011 tsunami and nuclear disaster, including a special report from the Fukushima Exclusion Zone. That's all at theworld.org. Still ahead, the troubles faced by a doctor in Pakistan who helped blaze a trail to Osama bin Laden on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Voters in France make their final choice for president this Sunday. It's a runoff between socialist François Hollande and conservative incumbent Nicolas Sarkozy. Hollande won the first round, and he's still ahead in the polls. When Sarkozy was first elected in 2007, he was the most popular president in French history. Now surveys suggest he's the least popular. So what happened? The World's Jerry Haddon reports. In 2007, Sarkozy promised to turn France on its head to shake up its cozy, if wayward, welfare state. If you work more, he said, throughout that campaign, you'll have more money in your wallet at the end of the month. That's what France needs. No more short work weeks or early retirement. His proposals were revolutionary. And though Sarkozy hardly cut the traditional presidential figure, the French, searching for a new place in a globalized world, gave him a chance. Fast forward five years. This was President Sarkozy getting heckled in northern France earlier in this year's campaign. He was forced to take refuge in a bar. His popularity has tanked heading into the vote. He could become the first sitting French president to lose an election since 1958. Sarkozy has had the misfortune of being at the helm during a prolonged economic crisis. 
But what really undermines Sarkozy's chances this Sunday is the man himself. The French have a word for what many consider his fatal flaw, bling. It implies bad taste, too much interest in money, a lack of culture. The French expect their presidents to be refined, appropriately distant, and very cultured. Sarkozy's image problems began on victory night, May 6, 2007. He threw a fete at one of Paris's swankiest restaurants, inviting movie stars and business moguls instead of celebrating with rank-and-file supporters in the streets. After the party, he went yachting with one of France's wealthiest tycoons. It was a garish start, and it only got worse. Mesdames et messieurs, je vous demande de bien vouloir excuser mon retard, at his first G8 summit in June 2007, Sarkozy arrived late to a press conference. My meeting with Vladimir Putin ran long, he said, slurring and out of breath. It's never been confirmed whether he was really as drunk as he seemed. Before that media hangover was over, the tabloid press got more. Premières images de ce samedi après-midi à Disneyland du président aux côtés de sa nouvelle compagne. Sarkozy announced he and his wife Cecilia were divorcing, a first for a standing French president. Soon after, Sarkozy made his first public appearance with a new girlfriend at a very unpresidential place, Euro Disney. The girl on his arm, former model and pop singer Carla Bruni, his wife today. And so 2007 went out with, well, a bling. 2008 was no different. At a summit in Bucharest, Sarkozy signed a trade deal with Romania, admired the official pen, then pocketed it, setting himself up for some severe lampooning. Days later, at an agriculture fair in Paris, the president secured another first in French politics, insulting a farmer who rejected his glad-handing. The most polite translation of Sarkozy's words would go something like, Buzz off, you jerk. The least polite would be a violation of FCC standards. Then the economic crisis came to roost. The president wasn't going to be able to deliver on his promise of more work, more jobs, more money for everyone. As that became clear, the French began to focus even more on Sarkozy, the man, the president who hasn't been presidential enough. Just days ago, President Sarkozy apologized for his early unpresidential behavior on a radio call-in show. Maybe he said, I made those mistakes early in my term because I failed to understand the symbolic dimension of my role as president of the republic. If Sarkozy had delivered the economic miracle he'd promised, such an apology might not have been necessary. The French might have forgiven his transgressions, but they haven't. And all indications are he'll be punished on Sunday. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon. It won't just be people in France voting this weekend. There are about one million French expats registered to vote, 150,000 in North America. But only about a third of them voted in the first-round presidential election two weeks ago. The world's Adeline Cyr was born in France and has made it to the polls for every major French election since she's lived in the U.S. Here's her snapshot of the first round. Honestly, voting in the French elections doesn't require a huge effort on my part. The polling station is very close to my house, just a few blocks away. In fact, this is the shortest distance I've ever had to walk to cast my vote in a French election. And this is an actual polling station in a school in Cambridge, Massachusetts. French Consul General Christophe Guillou oversees the election process for French voters in New England. We're voting on Saturday, one day ahead 
of the normal election day in France because of the time difference. We want the French community from America, not only in Boston, to vote before are announced the final results. So I went in and voted. After the polls close, the votes are counted on site and the results sent by a telegram to France to be included in the general election. There weren't a lot of people at the polling station, but I did meet with some of them outside. One of them was an American man married to a French woman. Uh, Jeff Rago from Lexington. It's my first time voting as a French citizen today. It's great. Next was Marc Batiani. I've been in the U.S. for three years now, <laughs> and it's my first election. Yeah, it's always important to vote because, I mean, uh, it's a right we have, and people are fighting for that in a lot of places. So even if we are not always happy with the, the choice we have, uh, we need to, to vote anyway. But some voters have a different interpretation of civic duty, like Thibault, a French student at Northeastern University. So I uh, decided to vote for a goat. I think all the candidates represent the same ideas. Uh, wait, 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 you said you voted for a goat? I voted for the goat. So uh, her name is Biquette. She's a great candidate. All the parties for me are exactly the same. They all have the same ideas. What's her program and how is she going to uh, fix the economy? Oh, she, she's just going to eat grass in, uh, in the field and, uh, I guess, be happy, uh, make everyone happy. And Thibault plans to write in Biquette the goat in this weekend's final round of the presidential election. For the world, this is Adeline Cyr. Hey, it won't matter who the guy votes for if the end of the world is really coming later this year. Some people are convinced that's the case based on what the Mayans supposedly believed, and that's the starting point for today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for a city in Mexico where you can find two things. One is a Mayan stone calendar supposedly predicting the end of the world. The other is a swim-up bar. Tourists flock to this place year-round to enjoy the sun, the stunning beaches, and nearby Mayan ruins. This year, the end-of-days hoopla is an added attraction. So where can you lounge on a resort beach, take a day trip to see a doomsday stone calendar, and hit the Hard Rock Cafe all in one day? We'll take you there a little later in the program. News headlines are up next. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, face-to-face with a Mayan calendar, or Stella, that some say predicts the end of days. We are right here in front of the Stella, where they found the inscription that talk about the ending and the beginning of this era. This is exactly where it was found, and this is the original Stella. 
The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The trial of Anders Breivik continues in Norway. Today, the court heard more details about the 69 people Breivik killed on Utoya Island last July. The confessed killer appeared unmoved by the testimony. Utoya was a site of a summer camp for young people run by Norway's Labor Party. The world's Laura Lynch met up with one of the massacre's survivors in his hometown of Stavanger. More than seven months after the horror of the killings, a small group of Norwegians gather in a hall in downtown Stavanger, still grappling with what happened. A moderator has brought together four panelists to talk about how the media have reported on the massacre and the trial and to examine just what it means for Norway's future. Eventually, it is Arshad Mubarak Ali's turn to speak. Ali stands out not only because of the color of his skin, he's also a survivor of that day of horror on Utoya Island. Ali knows while he may not have died, he was, in Breivik's mind, the enemy, simply because he's different from so many other Norwegians. Ali, who was born in Norway to parents who moved there from Sri Lanka, never noticed that difference until September the 11th, 2001. A teenager at the time, he remembers telling classmates how upset he was about what happened that day. So he was shocked when one of them identified him with the 9-11 assassins. A person said to me, I didn't think that you, I mean, uh, thought this was terrible. I thought that you were, I mean, supported these people. So so that experience uh, made me think, actually. Uh, when this classmate said this to me, I, I, I started to think, who am I? Why am I so different because I'm a Muslim? Ali spent the years after that exploring that question, studying the history of his faith, listening to a national debate that seemed to equate Islam with terrorism. Then, at the suggestion of his politically active father, he ran for city council and won a seat at the age of 20. Ever since, he's worked hard for the Labour Party. That's why he was at the party's youth meeting on Utoya Island that day. It was after the bomb attack in Oslo. People were scared. Ali recounts the terror of that day quietly and deliberately. He went with others to shelter inside a building after they heard gunshots outside. He was standing next to a closed door when a bullet came flying in. And then I just saw a gunshot, I mean a shot that went through the wall and hit this person. And he fell down and he started to shout. Uh, then I knew that, okay, this is something serious. Ali says he watched Breivik walk past the building. But then, with the wounded man crying out in pain, Ali heard the gunman come back and stand above the injured man. And then I just heard someone walking in very quietly. Uh, And then this person was still telling, uh, I I need help, please help me. Uh, And then we just heard three gunshots. And that, at that moment, I was sure I was going to die. But Breivik walked away without spotting Ali, carrying on his rampage. Ali now knows Breivik was trying to start a race war aimed at ridding Norway of people like him. The nation's response gave Ali renewed hope for the future. Right after the attack, I felt a really 
strong sense of unity in the country. It was very strong. I never experienced that before in my life. I never thought this would happen. And it was less focus on being different and more focus on being together. Ali believes that sense of unity is still there. Now he wants his fellow Norwegians to open up a dialogue to allow even extremists, Muslim or Christian, to air their views and engage in debate. He says that kind of debate tempered his own views about the role of Muslims in his country. If we don't deal with it effectively, and if we don't deal with it at all and just let it go, we will come to the point again where the society will be more and more polarized. There was a time when Ali considered leaving Norway behind to study in Saudi Arabia. Then he thought about the things that he says make his country special. Democracy, personal freedom, all of these things that we take for granted, actually, it's 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 actually not that common if if you compare it with uh, many other countries in the world. And I'm very glad and proud of being a part of what Norway is. Ali went to the opening days of the Breivik trial and was disturbed by what he heard and saw. Now he's ready to move forward, and he's hoping the nation can as well. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch, Stavanger, Norway. This week, President Obama has gone out of his way to remind Americans about the death of Osama bin Laden a year ago. There was that campaign ad featuring Bill Clinton praising Obama for authorizing the raid that killed the al-Qaeda leader, and Obama's secret trip to Afghanistan was timed to coincide with the anniversary, too. The U.S. raid on bin Laden's compound in Pakistan is still, a year later, a cause of friction between Washington and Islamabad. So is the fate of one man who has been detained by Pakistan since shortly after the raid. He's a Pakistani doctor named Shaquille Afridi. The New York Times' Declan Walsh in Islamabad reported on his story this week. Declan, just who is Dr. Shaquille Afridi and why has he been detained by Pakistani intelligence for nearly a year now? Dr. Afridi, at the time of his detention, he was the Surgeon General in Khyber Agency along the Afghan border. So he's a pretty senior uh, Pakistani medical official, but he was picked up two to three weeks after the bin Laden raid by Pakistani intelligence because they'd received information that Dr. Afridi had in fact been working for the CIA in the run-up to the May 2nd raid by American Navy SEALs, and that he had, in fact, been running a vaccination campaign in the neighborhood around bin Laden's house before the raid in order to try and get DNA evidence from the inhabitants of the house so that the CIA could confirm that bin Laden was living inside. And is there any doubt that Dr. Afridi was working for the CIA? At this point, there is really not much doubt, particularly since Leon Panetta, the defense secretary, who at the time of the raid, of course, was the CIA chief, um, he came out in January and made a public statement to the uh, program 60 Minutes, effectively owning Dr. Afridi, admitting that he had worked for the CIA and appealing to the Pakistani authorities to release him, saying that Dr. Afridi had not been doing anything against the Pakistani state, but rather that he had been helping the CIA to catch someone who was a common enemy to both Pakistan and the U.S., in other words, Osama bin Laden. Right. So what was the doctor actually doing to help the CIA? 
It turns out that he had actually been working for the CIA for several years, and his task was to continue with his normal work in cyber agency. And that involved moving around in a very sensitive part of the country where the CIA wanted to gather intelligence. So as we have established this week, the CIA had basically employed Dr. Freedy to you know, keep his eyes and ears open and pass on any information about al-Qaeda operatives in that area that would be of use to them. This was his normal mode of operation, but then when the Abbottabad operation came up, it was slightly different. In that point, he was actually contracted to run this special vaccination campaign, ostensibly to immunize the local inhabitants against hepatitis B, Mm. but his real job was to collect blood samples from the bin Laden house that could be used to confirm to U.S. intelligence that bin Laden was inside. Now, the story doesn't end there, though, not by a long shot. You've reported that Afridi has told the Pakistanis that he was introduced to the CIA through the aid group Save the Children. Save the Children denies this. Do you have any sense where the truth lies, Declan? Dr. Afridi's alleged testimony in detention has caused huge difficulties for Save the Children in Pakistan over the last year. At one point, the agency believed that Pakistani intelligence wanted to shut them down completely, to expel them from the country. And there have been you know, restrictions on their movement, restrictions on the import of medicines that are used to treat children, uh, which Save the Children says at one point resulted in 35,000 children in the tribal areas missing that treatment. Mm. So it's had a very considerable impact on them. And it's not just Save the Children that has had problems in this case. Most of the Western aid agencies here have complained that over the last year, they've come under very intense and negative scrutiny from Pakistani intelligence. And this largely stems from Dr. Afridi's claim that back in 2008, as he's told Pakistani intelligence, he was introduced to the CIA via a Save the Children employee. Save the Children has denied this very vociferously. And they basically say that while they had some connection with Dr. Afridi, in the sense that he had participated in medical training courses they ran for four years in a row, that otherwise they had no significant contact with him. And their sense is that basically he's scapegoating them to try and reduce his affiliation with the CIA or present some sort of alternative explanation for his actions. The New York Times' Declan Walsh in Islamabad telling us about the case of Dr. Shaquille Afridi. Thanks a lot, Declan. My pleasure. The United States has been at war in Afghanistan for 10 years. Along with the Iraq war, it's been a hard conflict for Americans here at home to understand, beyond thinking of it as a painful, often tragic slog in a faraway land. American publishers have released book after book chronicling the U.S. experience in Afghanistan. But as American forces prepare to withdraw, how much of an appetite is there for more about the country? The world's Alex Galifant takes a look. Wars produce books, lots of them. I could fill this bookstore with books about the Vietnam War that have been published in the last 50 years. And, you know, I only have one shelf of space for those books. Adam Tobin owns Unnameable Books, a used bookstore in Brooklyn. He listens to the radio as he decides what to stock. Foreign policy books, including ones on Afghanistan... He doesn't pick those very often. If I get one that people are looking for, I will sell it quickly. Otherwise, they tend to sit there for a very long time. (laughs) Books about current news events go out of date fast. Even a book that's a bestseller for a moment, six months later, nobody cares about that book anymore. 
That's what Jean McKenzie expects to happen to something she's working on at the moment. She's a journalist who, until last year, lived and worked in Afghanistan. McKenzie's writing a chapter on counterinsurgency for a yet-to-be-published foreign policy book. I wrote the uh, initial draft last year, and it's only going through the editing process now. And I'm, I'm reading what I wrote a year ago. It's already out of date. I will put a new top on it. But by the time it's published, which could be a year from now, I don't think that too many people are going to be interested in counterinsurgency in Afghanistan. In fact, whole subjects can be too unstable for a publisher. I'm Clive Priddle. I'm the editorial director of Public Affairs. He told me that, for instance, the Arab Spring's been a really hard topic to tackle. Just because I think a lot of people's predictions of the Arab Spring have not been entirely accurate. Uh, Do you know what the fate of Syria will be on the 1st of September? I certainly don't. I don't think anybody does. Could you confidently say that Bahrain will not emerge in street violence? I can't. So those topics are very difficult for us. So Priddle looks for books that tap into themes or storylines that may touch on the news, but are likely to have a long shelf life. Public Affairs has a book out now that's not only about the current war in Afghanistan, but about previous wars in the country too. Still, interest in a place like Afghanistan does come in waves, when a war begins or ends or kind of ends. And in between, you get lulls, times of fatigue when readers don't want to hear any more about war or corruption or violence against women. Uh, This is not an appealing story for a lot of people, and I can understand that quite well. But when those waves of interest do roll in, authors and publishers try to be ready. Jean McKenzie's writing her own book at the moment, based on the people she met during her seven years as a journalist in Afghanistan. I don't want to do another you know, brave girl in a war zone kind of uh, book. I think we've had enough of those. And so she's doing something different. She's writing a novel that charts a decade of war from the perspective of Afghan families. Mackenzie's writing about really personal stuff, the stuff that maybe wouldn't make it into a standard foreign policy book on Afghanistan. And in a novel, she doesn't have to worry about keeping up with the news or about seriously risking the reputations of her real-life Afghan friends. I have been told on more than one occasion by people I'm fairly close to that were I to write a book that were to expose them things that they had said to me, things that had happened, that they would come after me and kill me. A novel it is then. And though Mackenzie's an American, her determination not to make herself the central character in her book fits in with something public affairs editor Clive Priddle's seeing across American publishing. America is listening quite carefully to expertise or just good old-fashioned storytelling from around the world, in some ways in ways that I think it has been reluctant to do previously, that some of the self-confidence that we have all the answers here has, has taken a hit. There is a young Afghan author named Kais Omar, uh, who has written a book called The Fort of Nine Towers. It has yet to be published, but it is an account from the Afghan perspective of the civil war years and the early days of the um, international intervention that is is just beautiful and, and chilling. Omar's book is a novel too. I reached him in Kabul on a crackly phone line. You don't hear Afghan's voice, you know? And this is exactly what the books written over the past 10 years or more are lacking. He's seen foreign authors come in and write beautiful books about his country. But most of them are about them. Jean McKenzie also told me about another book by Kais Omar, this one co-written with an American author. It's called Shakespeare in Kabul. Reading it, she said, helped her see the last 10 years through Afghan eyes. 
It really made me very humble. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS and Masterpiece, presenting the new season of Sherlock, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman as crime fighting's favorite team. The game is on Sunday, May 6th at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Our GeoQuiz asked you to name a city where you can find a Mayan stone supposedly predicting the end of the world. Oh, and with a swim-up bar nearby. Yeah, I know, it was a bit of a trick question. A stone calendar said to predict the end of days is in the ruined Mayan city of Coba. That's a couple of hours by car from Cancun and its swim-up bars. So tell you what, we'll accept both answers, Coba and Cancun. Reporter Jake Warga traveled to the area to experience this mix of tourist decadence and doomsday scenario. I wanted to see for myself the actual Stella or Mayan calendar that predicts the end of the world. It's deep in the forests of Coba, outside of Cancun. We are right here in front of the Stella, where they found the inscription that talk about the ending and the beginning of this era, basically. This is exactly where it was found, and this is the original Stella. Oh, my name is Erika uh, Mitsunaga. I work for the Cancun Tourism Board. The Tourism Bureau has been trying all year to convince people that it is not, in fact, the end of the world. What we're really celebrating here in Mexico is the, re- the beginning of a new era. It's the ending of one era. Just like we end every year, we end one year. But we celebrate the coming of the, a new year. We all say in Cancun Tourism Board that there's no better place in the world to be this year than Cancun and this area. Just to be sure, I talked with an archaeologist. The 2012 ending of the world is mathematic. It's probably based on the Mesoamerican traditions where the world was created several times for the Nahuas or Aztecs, like five times, and for the Mayas, three times. This is Carmen Rojas. I am an archaeologist from the National Institute of Anthropology and History, but all the cultures in the world has this mythology. The, the world is created and is destroyed. I asked Carmen if they're really sure it's not December 2012. No, they never matched that ending of the, of the world with the 2012, definitely. They never matched that. They, they don't have stelas or glyphs saying, after this the world is going to collapse. They never said that. Ancient Mayans built temples overlooking the beach, watching as traders and their eventual demise came by sea. Today in Cancun, the beach is dense with modern temples, inclusive resorts actually, like cruise ships that beached and never left. If you truly believe the world is going to end, then you're not likely to start, say, an annual food and wine festival. All of Cancun is embracing 2012. It's, it's a time of happiness and of celebration and the beginning of a new era. So, yes, of course, everybody here is really excited. Paula Gomez handles Cancun's public relations. I met her at a more modern Yucatan temple called the Beach Palace during the Wine and Food Festival. The, the world is definitely not going to end. In fact, many hotels and tourism operators are starting to offer end-of-the-world vacation packages. 
But I decided, just in case the end of the world is coming, to go for a boutique cleanse. On the beach of the Weston Hotel, there's a working replica of a Mayan sweat lodge archaeologists found in Chichen Itza. My name is Margarita Roca. Here we are in this beautiful place called the Temascal, which is a sweat lodge for Native Americans. We crawl into a stone dome with a fire pit inside, into the past. Hot rocks are dumped in the middle and the entrance sealed. I can only see glowing embers and wonder why on earth I'm in the same room as them, but Margarita sees more. They're ancestors. So for me, the stones represent spirits of grandmothers and grandfathers. I only hear my grandparents laughing at me, but the steam overtakes me and I begin to feel the past and present coming together. It's more or less agreed that a combination of population growth and depletion of natural resources led the Mayans to abandoning the area, now to the present, where Cancun recently hosted a UN climate change conference. With current global resource strains, maybe the world as we know it is ending, but so slowly it's hard to notice. Some say the Mayans didn't mean it was the end of the world, but a change in consciousness. I hope that 2012 isn't the year the world ends, but rather the year we finally acknowledge that it's at least changing. For The World, I'm Jake Wargan, Cancun, Mexico. Jake sent us a great slideshow of Cancun's stunning beaches and nearby Mayan ruins. That's at theworld.org. And congratulations to our geotexting game winners today, Jamie from Ann Arbor, Michigan, Trisha in Houston, Texas, and Jeff from Brighton, Utah. They came up with our preferred answer today, Cancun. And finally, new music to rocket us into the weekend. That supergroup Rocket Juice and the Moon. The band is fueled by a trio of heavyweights, singer Damon Albarn from the Brit pop band Blur, Flea, the bassist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and drummer Tony Allen, who put the beat in Afrobeat for Nigerian legend Fela Kuti. So here's the backstory. The three musicians were on the same flight to Lagos, Nigeria. They bonded over their love for Afrobeat and funk, and when they touched down, their mission was clear. Form a new group. Rocket Juice and the Moon harkens back to the days when George Clinton burst through the funkosphere with Parliament Funkadelic and when jazz master Sun Ra was doing his thing on the Moog synth. But Rocket Juice also blasts way forward into the future, combining hip-hop and dubstep. Erica Badu adds a bit of soul to this tune, A Shooter. Rocket Juice and the Moon recently released a self-titled CD. 
band commitments, most notably Flea's world tour with the Chili Peppers, prevent Rocket Juice from doing its own tour, but you can hear two tracks from the band's first concert appearance at the Cork Jazz Festival in Ireland last year. They're at theworld.org. We close today's program with the tune Chop Up, featuring the Ghanaian rapper M. Anifest, along with Rocket Juice and the Moon. Eric Goldberg composed the world's theme music from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.